Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Diana DePasquale. I'm the host of New Books in American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Talking to me today is Dr. Alexandra Minna Stern, who is a professor of American culture, history, women's studies, and obstetrics and gynecology at the University of Michigan. She is the author of the prize-winning book, Eugenic Nation, Faults and Frontiers of Better Breeding in Modern America, and her most recent book, Proud Boys and the White Ethnostate, How the Alt-Right is Warping the American Imagination, is published by Beacon Press and was released just a few months ago. Hello and welcome. Hello. Nice to be here. Thank you. And um, if you could maybe talk to us about this transition from writing about eugenics to the to Proud Boys and the Alt-Right uh, crowd, I would appreciate sort of figuring out that through line. Yeah. Well, on some level, there's many connections. There are definitely threads that connect my earlier work on looking at the history of eugenics um, and looking at manifestations of white nationalism today. So there's really kind of two, I would say, there were kind of two main reasons why I, I wrote this book. The first was, as I was exploring, I'd always kind of kept tabs on white nationalist organizations and the kind of, quote, race realism, end quote, organization, American Renaissance, and, um, you know, similar ideologies, um, genetic essentialism, all of that. Um, I was kind of keeping tabs on those around, well, I have been, but around 2015, 2016, as they were becoming more visible. And one of the things I noticed was that the white nationalists were um, often going back to the eugenicists of the early 20th century and repurposing their ideas and repackaging them for the contemporary moment. So an example of that is um, white nationalist infatuation with Madison Grant, who wrote The Passing of the Great Race a book that was published in 1916. So in 2016, there was a centenary edition published by one of these white nationalist presses. There was a Richard Spencer of the National Policy Institute, most people know his name, wrote a long piece in one of the journals he edited called Radix Journal about the greatness of Madison Grant, and not just that book, but his whole, all of the books that Grant wrote and the importance of his ideas about, you know, um, the problems of race mixing and immigration and everything else that Madison Grant said is a kind of xenophobe and eugenicist. 
So I was interested in how those ideas are are incorporated, have been rehabilitated, and also in general in you know underlying white nationalism are ideas about who should be breeding, who shouldn't be breeding, who should be included and who should be excluded in the body politic, and where that what that body politic should look like, both in territorial terms and in demographic terms. So that's kind of one. And so I picked up those threads and I started exploring them. At the same time, you know, in the fall of 2016, um, racist flyers and this may have happened on your campus as well identity europa yeah so identity europa posted flyers and just kind of generic racist flyers started appearing um in buildings around campus including the building where my faculty office is and they were peddling ideas such as you know race and iq and race and criminality focusing on black men a uh, few of the kind of very um, triumphant images from Identity Europa saying, you know, the future is ours. Mm-hmm. So um, I was part of a group of faculty and, and graduate students who um, basically put those ideas and those memes in context and discussed them in terms of kind of scientific racism and push back against them. And also within my Department of American Culture, we're a place where, you know, students, particularly students of color, marginalized students, you know, have a home and need to feel that, you know, this is their space and we need to kind of, you know, push back against these destructive ideologies when they surface in, in posters and whatnot. So um, that also, so it was both kind of a longer term intellectual interest and then immediate response and realization that this had kind of, these ideas were entering kind of my immediate um, my immediate world um, in Ann Arbor. And so that motivated me to start working on writing about the manifestations of white nationalism. And really one of my, what I wanted to do from the get-go was to use my historical, use historical lenses along with the interdisciplinary lenses from feminist studies and queer studies and media studies, ethnic studies to write a history of the present, which is always challenging because you're swimming in the present. So you're trying to write a history in real time. Wow. Um, I'm glad that you ended there because one of the things I wanted to ask you about was I've heard you before speak about the ideas and the language of Proud Boys and other alt-right people who identify within the alt-right use as old wine, new bottle. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you could sort of explain more to the people listening how how the language, how the rhetoric has changed for what they're saying today compared to what they said at the, the early part of the 20th mm-hmm. century or even the mid part of the 20th, 20th century. I know you said that six, 1965, mid-60s is sort of this really um, pivotal moment for uh, eugenicists, modern eugenicists, and sort of race uh, people who, what we wouldn't have called them alt-right in the 60s, but white nationalists and white supremacists. How is the wine different? Or how well, is the bottle different? Yeah, yeah. So I would, and that relates to kind of one of my main objectives with this book. Um, there are a number of really good books out there on the alt-right, on the resurgence of white nationalism. Many of those books are written by journalists, and what they do is they will often track 
you know, follow particular individuals, look at particular organizations, you know, they will tell do a storytelling mode often with personal stories, which is often really helpful and can be in, provide insights. But what I wanted to do with this book was to really do an intellectual, a critical intellectual history of the present of the alt-right to look at the ideas of the alt-right mm -hmm. and to see what was persistent in terms of neo-fascism and what was also new insofar as new in con terms of context, historical context, and also new in terms of explanation. Um, so I would say, you know, in terms of there are elements of this that are familiar to those who have studied authoritarian regimes, fascist regimes um, across the globe, pa across the past 100 years. So the elements that are pretty consistent are, um, you know, a strong um, adherence to hierarchy, traditionalism, anti-egalitarianism, um, a tendency towards nostalgia and romanticism of the past. Um, and when I say traditionalism, um, that relates very directly to um, gender and gender roles. Um, but it also relates to ideas of, you know, more racially segregated pasts. Um, so those are some of the those once you begin to unpack this, you find, you know, that those that's like the bedrock of, of many of these ideas. However, they are manifesting differently in the 21st century for a few reasons. One, and we can talk more about this, is just kind of the whole media ecosystem of social media and the Internet and what that has done, both in terms of helping to create networks, but also make this kind of more ephemeral and raise issues of accountability and things like that. Um, but also because there have just been, and I mentioned before, context, you know, changes in historical context. So one of the points that I make in the book that I think it's important to underscore, and this is an ongoing issue of how do we talk about these groups? Because some people just say, let's just call it white supremacy. Let's call it what it is. And I think that, yes, let's do that. I mean, I don't have any objection to that. And I think it's important to, to name it for kind of its most, it's extreme racism and xenophobia. However, what, you know, groups today or these groups today are doing that broadly fall under the umbrella of the alt-right is they're really embracing white nationalism and they see a distinction between white nationalism and white supremacy. And that distinction is that in their eyes, white national, white, in their eyes, white supremacy is about whites ruling over mixed race populations. So that is um, South Africa several decades ago. That is the United States in the 1950s. And they claim they don't want that arrangement because that arrangement is not beneficial, you know, and they, to different racial groups. And it also places kind of this burden of governance on whites and they don't want that, at least not over, over a wide range of, you know, ethnic and racial groups. What they want is separation. Is that how they're, is that, do they have a, a are they trying to have a, a, a veneer of sort of plausible deniability by saying that we don't want anything? Uh, we don't we don't feel superior, but we do want 
separation is that how they get away with that yeah. phrase human biodiversity exactly okay. so that's the uh, that links right in is this human biodiversity sounds kind of good initially because it has bio and diversity in there but from their perspective what that means is every race in their own habitat mm. you know kind of and um separated and segregated so white nationalism you know in 2019 basically means, you know, whites in their own ethno state, blacks in their own ethno Sort of state. like a prison cafeteria. I've heard that argument yes. used as well. Yeah. So it's similar to that. And for, from there, they have this kind of double edged. It depends on which white nationalist you're reading on what platform. But, um, you know, sometimes they talk about it in terms of being so generous that they really want every group to have their own space so that every group can thrive in their own kind of ethno state or, or territory. On the other hand, to create a white ethno state requires a range of different strategies and tactics, such as repatriation, removal, deportation, revocation of citizenship. And if you follow the implications of that, which lead to, you know, um, massive human rights and civil rights violations, if not bloodshed and violence. So I think it's really important to be aware that, you know, the white, white supremacy is, I think, a fine term to use to get a general sense of what is going on, particularly with such violence that we've seen, you know, kind of the white, the white terror that we've seen. But we really need to wrap our heads around what they need, mean by white nationalism, because tied into that is also the demographic concerns. So what is motivates and kind of fuels a lot of kind of this anxiety and this desire to raise white consciousness in quote among, you know, um, white nationalists is the sense that the demographic demographic clock is ticking and that by 2045 or 2050, uh, the United States will be a country in which whites are no longer a majority. They've become a minority and they are concerned that that will lead to white genocide and extinction. And then um, to them becoming not only a minority, but a persecuted and hated minority. Um, and so that's where a lot of the concern is raised. So understanding, I think that it's just important to understand what they mean by white nationalism so we can understand what it means in both their kind of social media context and also when it, it is... Um, if it were to be put into practice, what it, it would look like. What it would look like and um, also what happens when it's taken to the extremes of kind of, you know, mass murder and violence as we mm -hmm. saw in, in El Paso. And, you know, similar ideas were at play in Christchurch, mm -hmm. you know, in a different context, but also in a settler colonial environment of New Zealand when, you know, those countries have some similarities to the U.S. as well. So uh, this is also connected to the replacement theory that many people have been talking about as a result of El Paso, Charlottesville, Christchurch, this pervasive fear by white nationalists or white supremacists or ethno-nationalists that um, identities of, of mostly people who identify as white is at risk because there's someone coming up that's a threat to them, either economically or culturally. Uh, so this is all connected to that too, as well, right? Exactly. Okay. So, you know, the idea is that whites or white Europeans are being outbred. They're being outnumbered. Um, they are facing extinction 
um, and that the replacement is underway, um, it either needs to be stopped, it needs to be mitigated, it needs to be pushed back. Um, Otherwise, the outcome in their eyes is inevitable and it will lead to their disappearance. Can we, uh, you mentioned something that I want to sort of go back to, which is uh, you dedicate an entire chapter of the book to this, to these ideas about the natural order, gender, and then how that also translates to transphobia. Can you speak more to those things? Definitely. So um, one of the elements that I really wanted to be front and center in this book um, was to um, really ground the centrality of misogyny and sexism to understanding white nationalism today. And that's where the term all right can be somewhat more, can be helpful in a sense because it can capture particularly those elements of um, misogyny, like the, you know, the men going their own way groups, the whole pickup artists, all of those cultures, Gamergate that kind of fed into, Mm -hmm. um, that is an integral part of the alt verse or, and, and bleed into, or a part of white nationalism. So, you know, in terms of understanding some of the core ideas, I mean, the book looks at each chapter of kind of the first five chapters are dedicated to looking at a core idea of, of the alt-right. So the first chapter is on kind of red-pilling and conversion and metapolitics. The second chapter is on the ethnostate and segregation, um, I think, if I'm remembering the chapters correctly. The third chapter, <clears throat> in any case, the, there's a chapter on traditionalism and essentialism, and there's a chapter on patriarchy and looking at the role of women. And I also look at issues of normalization. But to answer your question, you know, looking at some of these kind of the kind of core neo-fascist ideas that undergird white nationalism, you know, there is a strong belief in essentialism, essentialism in terms of gender roles, and actually like the biological makeup of men and women, males and females, and also essentialism in terms of racial differences or ethnic differences. So in terms of racial and ethnic differences, you know, the go-to literature um, that white nationalists, and this is where kind of the race realists come in, go-to is literature almost always on IQ on IQ differentials and perpetuating this idea. I mean, I was just listening to a podcast this morning from American Renaissance where someone was making an argument that, you know, ongoing immigration to the U S or to Sweden or whichever country is lowering the national IQ by like two points a year. So they're always going to these IQ arguments about race. Um, At the same time, you know, I would say that the, the, substrate, I mean, in a way, the ideological substrate where we can kind of, where is this really grounded and centered? It's really around gender binaries. Like the binary of gender is absolutely fundamental to understanding the broader ideas developed by white nationalists. And that is about kind of dichotomous thinking, kind of us versus them thinking about really clear cut in their eyes, differentiation as manifested in gender. And this also gets to, well, who are these people? For the most part, they are, you know, um, you know, aggrieved, entitled, cisgendered white men who feel like, you know, their 
they are losing their grip on the American society that they should have or that they used to have or that, you know, they wish to have. They wish to have. So, um, and one of the things that, you know, I found, which was a little surprising in researching this book, is I anticipated finding like rampant homophobia in all writings of white nationalists or those connected to the alt right. And there certainly is homophobia, and I'm talking about anti, you know, LGB, um, you know, kind of sentiments. But there are also, there actually are a few prominent white nationalists who evolve it out of themselves right. as gay. They would never use the one word queer. They don't right. like that word. But, um, and in fact, there are some that elevate, you know, because they're so hyper-masculinist, you know, this kind of man-to-man relationship as the most kind of evolved that can exist and the most meaningful that can happen between human beings. And so it slides a little bit into homoeroticism sometimes. But there are some who are like incredibly homophobic and you'll find the most venomous things written by them. And, you know, it's like it's truly blood curdling. But there are others who basically shrug and say, you know, don't ask, don't tell. There might be some, you know, it's all about men. There might be a few gay men among our ranks. But as long as they put the white race first, it doesn't really matter. And they might be some of the best kind of thinkers that we have. But what is absolutely... um, uh, what is absolutely kind of pervasive is transphobia. And you find that both in the alt-right and white nationalism, white supremacy, and also really among the what has was called the alt-light. So those who like Milo Yiannopoulos mm-hmm. or people like uh, Stephen Molyneux, who are these internet kind of philosophers and <clears throat> provocateurs who won't they're not going to go all the way to like using anything that be could be construed as like neo-nazi language or hardcore white supremacist Someone language like jordan peterson jordan peterson a- but you know they are um they're kind of right on that borderline and the the kind of the their transphobia is an expression of those same fears that we were talking about before, this aggrieved entitlement and, and kind of, you know, the fears of, of kind of loss and dispossession. And I'll just say one more thing about that, you know, why transphobia? And I would say that, you know, transphobia, um, for those on the alt-right, you know, being trans is the ultimate destabilizer for them because they can kind of, some of them can wrap their heads around the idea that there might be a man who's attracted to another man but the idea that biological sex could actually be more complicated and be more fluid and that, you know, that line between male and female is actually, you know, as we know, is more fluid and um, it's more, you know, fluid than um, it is, is fluid is something that, you know, really kind of irks them. So I think that there's something like really deep about that, you know, a, a deep anxiety and a kind of deep fear. And so you will find that over and over again. I mean, if you look at Twitter feeds of <clears throat> those on the alt right or alt light, you know, you will every sixth, you know, kind of post will be something about like a, against drag queens, against trans people. And so I just think that that's why, I mean, I would say it's one of the central elements of white nationalism today is transphobia 
a lot of people wouldn't go to that immediately, but that's why we need kind of a feminist analysis and a gender analysis brought into the mix. Which is the next thing that I want to ask you about that. So for those of us who do work in gender studies, queer studies, women's studies, and spend a lot of time looking at this stuff, Gamergate, men going their own way, men's rights activism, um, pickup artists and red pill culture. I think we've been aware for a really long time that this is pervasive and it's been out there for a really long time. And there's lots of overlap with other targeted attacks against other marginalized groups. But why isn't there already such a connection? Why are, why are some people missing the connection between um, uh, the, the desire, the sort of demand for racial domination or racial supremacy as well as gender supremacy? I know you already said that many of them identify not as supremacists, but separatists, Mm -hmm. but, but there's no denying that there are, they make claims about distinct differences based on biology, whether it be race or gender or sexuality too, I guess. Mm -hmm. What, what is the work that's needed to connect those dots more easily for people? Cause it doesn't seem to be so easy for people yet. Yeah, I think that's a really great question, and that's one of the reasons why I hang on to the term alt-right, even though it is anachronistic, and some might say it is problematic to use a term you know, invented by the alt-right themselves, and I totally get that, and I see the issues with that. However, under that bigger umbrella, it is um, you can connect the dots between misogyny and racism and xenophobia because you can see them and you can see the ideological cross traffic Mm. between, you know, among these different ideas and among these different kind of actors. I would say that, you know, one of the things that concerns me in kind of reporting on the resurgence of white nationalism today is the tendency to go immediately to the kind of most extreme denominator so it's immediately, you know, and this you see this on MSNBC, which often has pretty good coverage around these things where what is the backdrop to talking about, you know, white supremacy or white nationalism today? It's like the KKK, it's, you know, hoods, or it's, they might not necessarily show swastikas, but they're conveying this idea of the KKK or neo-Nazis. Now, the KKK has actually been diminishing, and the Southern Poverty Law Center has shown that there's been kind of a trending away from those types of groups. There certainly, you know, are um, members of some of these kind of self-defined neo-Nazi groups. But what we're seeing is kind of an upsurgence of groups that would call themselves ethno-nationalists, identitarian and they so they get to sort of avoid the baggage of they the want to yeah they want to sanitize themselves um and so they're actually harder to see and it all is they don't seem quite as scary but i would say that they are more insidious and in fact i, I think they're all problematic and potentially dangerous but though they are more insidious and they really require our close attention because they have more potential for normalization. And in fact, some of them have been successful normalization. So that then relates to thinking about gender, because, you know, when you even say something like, you know, fascist or neo-fascist, most people won't, unless they've studied gender and fascism, won't go directly to thinking about gender and traditionalism. But that is absolutely core to understanding kind of what fascism is and the nostalgia that's connected 
to kind of different modes of uh, fascist thinking. I would say that, you know, unfortunately, we live in a society where kind of sexism and misogyny are so rampant. Um, and, you know, we live in a society where, you know, reproductive rights are under assault, um, where, you know, yes, we're living through kind of a Me Too moment. It's a very conflicted moment. And there are both kind of positive things happening on the feminist side, but there are also, there's a huge amount of backlash going on. And I would say it's baked, so baked into, um, you know, kind of our American culture and, and society that it is harder for people to see the gender part. Um, and, you know, people are really concerned about racism and xenophobia. And so those are go-to issues. And I totally get that. And I think that that's really important, but they can kind of pull all the oxygen out of the room mm. when we really need to make sure that kind of the misogyny and sexism are part of that conversation and are understood as integral pieces um, of this puzzle. So that's why I'm just always talking, you know, some people are, don't quite understand why I'm always talking about kind of transphobia or misogyny or gender traditionalism in the context of white nationalism. But I would really say, let's start the conversation with that. Because it's going to open up to everything right. else. It will, if you start the conversation just with white supremacy and neo-Nazis, it's harder to backtrack and open up these other kind of ideological dimensions. I want to backtrack just a second to um, this idea of traditionalism too. And, and it also connects to the homoeroticism you brought up earlier. It, so when Identity Europa did visit our campus, the flyers that they put up used lots of classical imagery. Yes. And, you know, there were uh, there was text that said, you know, reclaim your heritage, your classic civilization or something like that. And uh, they seem to really, really put a lot of stock in classic images of uh, ancient civilizations, which also can be explored through the lens of sort of either queerness or homoeroticism, how does, how do those two things sort of intersect into their message now or their, their rhetoric now? Why are they using those, that type of imagery? Well, I think there's been, and there's been, there's an interesting book on this by Donna Zuckerberg, by the way, who's the sister of Mark Zuckerberg. And she did a PhD in classics and she wrote a book on the way in which white nationalists, how white nationalists are appropriating the classics and like Ovid not only the, the literature and the kind of the mythology, but also the imagery and the iconography. It's a pretty interesting book. Um, so there has been, a, you know, classics is a field where these debates, classics and medieval studies are fields where these debates are raging right now okay. on issues around diversity and representation and kind of um, how to be in a field um, who's some of whose like key ideas and images are actively being appropriated by white nationalists and so on. Um, so anyway, I'm trying to remember the whole, I got off on the The classics. intersections between classic oh, uh, yes. and okay. homoeroticism. Well, so I would say that, you know, there's a fetishization of the, you know, white male body and of the kind of ideally perfected, um, you know, muscular white male body, often going back to like Greek statuary or other types, things that are kind of almost in a caricature way seen as the epitome of kind of like Western civilization. Um, and so they like to use those and they like to, you know, which kind of signals so much about them and also that these are 
male movements and they're incredibly masculinist mm. movements as well. Um, and so the and it, that then speaks to what we were discussing before about this kind of invented nostalgia and this invented tradition and wanting to claim it and wanting to kind of um, wanting to claim it and wanted, wanting to use these symbols to kind of recruit and kind of bring people into the ranks. What is interesting, though, about Identity Europa is Identity Europa was started in 2016 and um, really, with that name, lasted until about 2018. Right? Didn't they recently change the they, name? They changed their name. What happened was this: the Santifa group, the Unicorn Riot, went in and basically went into their Discord servers and went into other their other servers, and they hacked in and they made. You can download all of this stuff. You can I have. Just, okay, you have. So you know it. So you know. And then they also hacked into Patrick Casey's account and. Um, he's all, he's been suspended from Twitter, by the way. Um, and he claims that that wasn't the reason why they rebranded, but it's totally the reason they rebranded. And they, and also some of the people, their potential recruits, they didn't get like the whole identity Europa. That was like basically trying to be like hip, fashy, kind of European style identitarians in the U S and some of their potential, you know, kind of recruits and people who could join them didn't, that just didn't translate for them. So they rebranded as the American identity movement and they really want to be the identitarian kind of the leading edge of identitarianism in the United States. And they actually changed some of their key words. So they moved from being, they're still, you know, like xenophobia and anti-immigration is central to what they do, mm-hmm. but they've moved to, you know, kind of really trying to Americanize themselves now by latching on to the language of protectionism and also patriotism. So Which is really sort of a throwback to second wave clan language from the early part of the 20th century. It is. Century. And so they're using eagles and they're using like Americana symbols mm-hmm. And they're doing their flash mobs with their banner rollouts, you know, at different places around uh, the country. They do like one a week. They've done them in Nashville. They've done them. They do them in a whole range of different places. They appear, you know, they march up together. Patrick Casey is usually the one with the, the bullhorn. They'll make some statements. They'll unfurl a banner that says something like protect our borders, stop immigration, preserve, you know, kind of civilization or whatever it is. They did one in front of the Mexican consulate, actually, about a year ago. That was about building the wall. And most of them were wearing MAGA hats. But in any case, um, that is a group to really keep an eye on. Um, they continue to be kind of deplatformed inconsistently. And, um, you know, they're kind of doing this, you know, whack-a-mole of moving from server to server to try to have their private, you know, chat rooms and things like that. But, you know, it seems to be that it's a group that it might not be growing astronomically, but it is growing at a pretty good Pace and it has a lot of activity going on at the level of the local chapters, mm-hmm. where there are people who are finding each other and meeting up. And you know, they try to be you know good boys some of the times, and they'll go you know do a food or trash clothing pickup. drive, mm-hmm. yeah, for Purple Heart, right. or they'll do trash pickup, or they'll go to. I've seen them go to like an assisted living facility where they volunteered for a day. And this is all part of their normalization plan. Um, 
so that is something where you can totally see kind of the attempts to craft this new white nationalism bolstered by ethno-nationalism and identitarianism and also to embody a certain type of masculinity and gender normativity. It's all part of that package. Getting back to chapter one, uh, you describe metapolitics. Can you describe what it is and what it looks like in action in online spaces or uh, even in other contexts so people can recognize it when uh, or at least be able to recognize it as a strategy used by yeah. the alt-right, the alt-right. Yeah, so metapolitics is a term that a lot of people haven't heard of. It's been around for um, about a half a century. Well, it's been around for longer. It started in the domains of kind of like uh, philosophy and theory in Germany in the 19th century. But it was a term that was seized upon by the European New Right and particularly the French New Right in the late 1960s. And the reason that they seized upon that term was because, you know, the the French New Right, as it came to be called in the late 1960s, was appalled by kind of everything that they saw happening in French society around kind of student activism, um, leftism, liberalism, you know, kind of the changing norms and and kind of the relinquishing of traditionalism and but they didn't want to um kind of throw themselves into the um into politics into like you know classic politics like electoral politics or institutional politics and really kind of decided and this is interesting because they're drawing ideas from the Frankfurt school and also from mm-hmm. Antonio Gramsci the Italian theorist of you know kind of this whole idea of hegemony and culture. Mm -hmm. So they're drawing from that. And what they decided is, you know, the kind of war that we need to wage is a war of metapolitics. In other words, we need to change culture and through culture, we can change society and changing culture means like changing the ideas that circulate, you know, taking over as one um, historian has said, taking over book clubs instead of running for office. Um, when I read when I read what you had written about that, it reminded me lots of um, uh, Althusserian sort of theory of uh, who owns the culture, who sort of gets to set the tone of ideology in whatever uh, culture we're talking about. It reminded me a, a lot of that. It also um, makes me think of this emerging trend of metamodernism philosophy mm-hmm. that is also used by many young men mm-hmm. on the Internet a lot uh, in order to change attitudes about what is funny, right? We we know that mm-hmm. the alt-right quite often uses humor as like, well, this is just a joke or nothing should be taken seriously. And metamodernism sort of flies in the face of truth and absolute truth. And I think those two things are tied to metapolitics and metamodernism philosophy. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I don't know that much about metamodernism. I know that metapolitics, you know, was something that, um, was central to the making of the French new right and the European new right in general, and then migrated over to the U S where many of kind of, you know, the most prominent white nationalist thinkers, they draw heavily on European literature and some of those affiliated with this group called Greece, which was, um, you know, kind of the intellectual epicenter for the French new right and it's interesting because metapolitics in America is going to look different than it's going to look 
in Europe. And by the time they really had the kind of the American white nationalists had incorporated these ideas, the internet was expanding and social media was becoming kind of the primary space for doing metapolitical work. Mm -hmm. So it's that no one in 1968 could have anticipated that, but, you know, you know, social media and the whole media platforms have become the space, including podcasts. I mean, there mm. is a proliferation. There are, you know, there is a proliferation of white nationalists and alt-right podcasting and, you know, interviewing and blogging. And, and that's why also social media is the issues around deplatforming and kind of all of the cries among the, uh, among the alt-right about, you know, kind of censorship. censorship and free speech and there's bias against conservatives mm. and all of that is front and center for them right now. So I would say that definitely, you know, the internet, social media is one of the, perhaps the primary meta-political domain, but I'll add one more thing to that, which is that, you know, as they were, so the term alt-right is coined in 2008 by um, Richard Spencer, and he, what he does is he shortens uh, the title of a talk that was given by someone named Paul Gottfried, who is a philosopher who taught for many years at the university on the East Coast and was kind of, he affiliated with paleoconservatism. He thought the conservative movement in the U.S. had kind of become way too mainstream and kind of sold out, and there was no, like, hardcore extreme kind of conservatism there. So, in any case, so he comes up with this term, Godfrey does alternative right. Then Spencer shortens it to alt-right, and he publishes that in this Radix journal, which he edited, was one of the many ventures he edited. And now you can look at the, that online. It's, a lot of the stuff is archived. Um, but in any case, you know, so this is kind of churning along, you know, 2008, 2010. I think that's when Countercurrences started, one of kind of the other main sites for white nationalist publications and webzining. And they also publish books. Um, but so they were kind of moving along with, you know, this whole idea of metapolitics, like we need to red pill you know, white guys and white women, you know, although they don't necessarily pay that much attention to them, like one person at a time. And eventually we'll get to the tipping point of kind of like a changed white consciousness. And then all of a sudden Donald Trump appears and, you know, he becomes, you know, it was all very tumultuous. And then, you know, by 2015, 2016, you know, this whole memeing culture in and what you were saying before about metamodernism and kind of playing Pepe with memes. the frog. Pepe, all of that is happening. And then lo and behold, this guy who they didn't think had a chance, and a lot of people didn't think had a chance, they were as shocked as anyone else when Donald Trump was actually elected. And then the all right was on this incredible high, thinking that actually their guy, as they like to call him, I mean, put that in quotes, their guy, quote unquote, was was now in, in the White House. And so that kind of disrupted the whole metapolitics. And then they thought, well, maybe we're ready to kind of, you know, go into the real public square, not just like the internet public square. And then Charlottesville happened in August of 2017. And that was a total disaster for so many reasons. And it was a horrifying thing that happened. And that demonstrated to, you know, the alt-right that, you know, you know, they, it was, it wouldn't, it, it horrified us who witnessed what happened and when Heather Heyer died and everything else, 
but to the alt right, it demonstrated that they really couldn't do that anymore. That that was not a strategy that was going to work for them, at least right now. And so then they, many of them, scattered to the wind. Some of them were deplatformed, but that doesn't mean that they went away. And in fact, it kind of allowed them to go back to their previous decentralized mode and find other ways to hook up and change ideas. And the other thing I'll just add to that is that. Um, you know, with that came, you know, more recognition and condemnation of anything associated with like neo-Nazism mm-hmm. um, or kind of obvious like fascism. But one of the things that these groups are, are can be good at um, is, you know, coming up with ways of coding their language and dog whistling things. Mm-hmm. So the, you know, tw- Gab is full of this, but Twitter is full of like, you know, millions and millions of like white nationalist dog whistles, whether it's anti-Semitic, whether it's like, you know, super racist and, you know, demonizing blacks, whether it's, you know, really sexist language, whether it is just something that is kind of sardonic and poking fun or whether it's an all in out call for, you know, for certain groups to be hung or killed, it's out there in coded language. Mm -hmm on the internet, which is really, to me, quite horrifying. One of the reasons I think we need to be able to decode this stuff and to see it um, and to to understand it. Is is that what you, uh, in chapter two, you write about um, white nationalist timescapes and how upsetting those can be sort of a, an effective strategy on resisting, pushing back, you know, whatever kind of language you use. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, actually, you know, the other motivation for the whole reason this book kind of exists is because... I was contemplating those posters that we were talking about, the Identity Europa posters, which said something like the future, I think this is it, the future belongs to us. And I've always been interested in memory and time and thinking about the role of time and chronology and history and how history is told and who owns the past and what narratives do are kind of the dominant narratives, what gets marginalized. I mean, you know, this is all super important to ethnic studies yeah. and, you know, whose story is told and, and um, you know, who is part of America and all of that. So I actually wrote, a, uh, a I prepared a presentation for a conference in Boston on um, thinking about time in the context of the alt-right and looking at the importance of metaphors of time. And um, I wanted to unravel that. So that chapter is kind of the most theoretical and intellectualized in a way. It can it can be maybe of all of them, it could be maybe the toughest read. However, I think it's one of the most important because one of some of the points are, I make are, first of all, you know, white nationalists reject linear time. They think linear time is Whiggish time. It's teleological time. It is all caught up in notions of progress and civilizational progress and American progress. Is it that they're always looking back at the good old days and forward to the days when things will be get back to normal? Well, they're looking back to the good old days, but also looking forward to a future that they will that will be kind of a rebirth. Okay. And that's where kind of the fascist side of things. It's cyclical time. It will be a rebirth. And it will ideally, in their eyes, be a rebirth in which technologies will be mobilized to white ends for white people. Mm-hmm. And so there they draw from some of the European, you know, right philosophers who talk about the need to use, you know, genetic technologies and, um, you know, uh, reproductive technologies to 
expand and to improve the white race. So we're back to some of those mm-hmm. eugenic themes. But in any case, the, you know, it's the other key elements of kind of white nationalist time, we might call it, are rejecting linear time, moving towards cyclical time, and they draw from Hindu philosophies there in very kind of rudimentary ways. They draw from Julius Ebola, who uh, was a, a kind of an Italian, extreme Italian fascist thinker from the early 20th century, who also drew from, like they all appropriated kind of these Hindu or Eastern mystic ideas as they saw them. Julius Ebola shows up in um, The Devil's Bargain, the book yes, written by... Yes, because Steve Bannon mm-hmm. liked him. Right, and that's right, right. when people first heard about him. Um, so he, but he's been a cult figure for a long time in these kind of more intellectualized circles. But also key to that is rejecting egalitarianism. So they're deeply anti-egalitarian. They're deeply anti-egalitarian. And that goes to the gender element, but it also goes to thinking about what kind of a society did they want. So they reject a society that is built on social contracts that is built on principles such as equality, fraternity, the pursuit of happiness, anything that would be codified in, you know, these Republican constitutions and documents of governance that emerged, you know, as we know in the 18th century. And they reject those and think that those, because what did those do? Those disrupted the natural order, those forced equality on a populace or we know that it was more complicated than that, and only a few act, you know, few groups had access to that equality in the United States, you know, in the late 18th century. But nonetheless, it created, you know, um, an ideal of equality as a kind of a the reign, a reigning principle of society, and that's why, you know, that for them is what civic nationalism is. Right. And civic nationalism is bad because it's based on principles of equality and, you know, uh, uh, equality and, um, you know, connection and things like that. And instead, you know, they embrace ethno-nationalism, which is rejects egalitarianism and moves towards hierarchy and an unequal natural order. And that's just the way things should be back to this idea of human biodiversity. Um, so I hope that kind of makes sense. So I think that the time part is absolutely essential to understanding who they are and what they want to do and how they imagine their own political and metapolitical projects going forward. Uh, my next question, what you just said makes me think, um, about it as opposed to time now getting into space. Most people are probably familiar with the proud boys because of their presence. They're very, very, uh, you know, uh, vocal presence in the Pacific Northwest, uh, Oregon. It, there are Proud Boys chapters all over the country, but what is it about the Pacific Northwest, you know, that they are so um, active there? And are there other pockets of the country, like even in the Deep South, you would think would be sort of a perfect breeding ground for, for uh, more Proud Boys chapters? It, does it look differently depending on what part of the country you are? Because I know in Columbus there's a chapter, mm-hmm. um, but they're they're just as disruptive, but they're smaller. Uh, they have less, um, you know, violent clashes with with demonstrators, but they're around all over the place. Yeah, they where are. are they most active, and and where are they least active? Yeah, I mean, I can't answer that completely. I mean, okay. I don't have a handle on all of the different chapters. I do know that there. I have followed different. Facebook pages and some of the, um, 
you know, when news articles appear about, you know, what the Proud Boys have done and where. Um, I would say that, you know, since Gavin McGinnis, who started it, kind of like stepped away from it in his kind of weird, half-hearted way, right. although we're not clear how far away he actually stepped, um, you know, it has most, much of the Proud Boys activity does happen on the local level. Um, and, you know, it is a place again for, you know, these guys to find each other. And one of the things that's interesting about the Proud Boys, and this is where the gender element and the transphobia comes in so critically, is that, you know, the Proud Boys presents itself and it has, you know, it has some, you know, members of color, some guys, you know, African-American guys, I think maybe the vice president now is African-American or I can't quite remember the details, but anyway, they have had, you know, it's not an all white organization and they claim to be non-racist and also um, to be, you know, not, they claim not to be homophobic. They're completely transphobic. So, but they, you know, gay men can join if they want to, if they just want to hang out and have a beer with them. Of course, they're all about heterosexual reproduction, but in any case, so that's, you know, why in the Pacific Northwest, I would say that there are a few reasons. One is that the Pacific Northwest, you know, is an area of the country that, you know, is demographically whiter than other parts of the country. Oregon itself has a long history of kind of racism and anti-black racism. Um, I think that progressives in Oregon struggle with that history. Um, And, you know, I'm not exactly sure why Portland itself has become such a hotbed for this. Um, I would say probably there's a critical mass because, you know, you've got young white 20 something guys and their other friends, you know, who are joining these organizations and they like the combative nature of Proud Boys. They also have been joined by this other group called Patriot Prayer, Mm -hmm. which is kind of the Christian right wing uh, kind of arm. Um, And they know also that that Antifa will come out and that they can, you know, there will be action in the streets. And so I think that this has almost become the script that they keep like reenacting over and over again. Um, but you know, it's not happening, you know, at that level in Seattle or in other parts of the country. So I'm not exactly sure why Portland, I mean, there's some, there's a interesting, um, I'm trying to remember his, his name, but there's a activist historian of who wrote a good book on white nationalism and fascism. And I think he's based in Portland and that would be a good person to Mm -hmm. talk to. I'll try to remember his name. It'll come to me. Um, later. So I think it would be, I'd, I'd like to talk to people on the ground there to understand more right. about that. And then my last question that um, came out of the conversation you, you mentioned before, you, you uh, sort of as an aside, you said, and the, the white women who are involved in the movement, other than, you know, those women having internalized sexism and misogy- misogyny, what's in it for them on like a real practical level? Are they allowed any um, access to sort of, uh, you know, are they in the upper levels of the Proud Boys? Like, why would women align themselves, other than the the reasons I just said, because they've internalized some some traditionalist ideas about gender? What's in it for those young women? Well, in terms of the Proud Boys, I mean, that's a fraternal all male organization. Although they have these like auxiliary groups, right. with, You know, the Proud Boys women or whatever, and they have T shirts and. 
there are women who like that idea of separate spheres for men and women and like those guys and think maybe they're good potential husbands or whatever. I mean, that's the message that one sees right, if right, one right. kind of like just kind of skims it on online. In terms of why women, you know, grab white women gravitate towards white nationalism, I would say that, you know, it's similar kind of rejections of kind of, you know, some of the key, what they would see as the key problems of, you know, American and European societies, which is multiculturalism, liberalism, mm. globalism, translation, Jewish right. dominance, um, diversity, and kind of, you know, on all levels. So they believe that, you know, diversity is saturated into universities, into corporate culture, into everything else, and there's no way to escape it. Um, and, you know, I would say that for them, they must see, you know, some benefit in, you know, creating and replicating really gender traditionalist structures where, they're going to feel some sense of coherent identity and going to feel, you know, this idea of they're going to be protected by their white male saviors and, and all of that. One of the things that's really interesting about the white women who are part of, um, you know, these networks is that, you know, this is where um, kind of having social media platforms is, is so critical and kind of makes this possible in a different way. So there have always been white women who have been part of these movements and often played integral roles in these movements. Almost in as terms a, of, a support staff. As a support yeah. staff and as key to kind of like the, the socializing and the kind of the, the family making that can be right. part of it. But here what you have is, you know, women like Lana Loptev, who is, you know, the wife of Henrik Palgrim and they run Red Ice TV, which is half run out of Sweden and, and somewhere in the southern United States. And they, you know, are the premier kind of like web TV slash radio space for this kind of identitarianism, white nationalism. But, um, you know, if you look at someone like her, um, she is someone who fully embraces, you know, kind of the, the domesticity role, the role of wife, the role of mother, thinks that that's crucial to kind of expanding white nationalism today and red pilling more women to do the same, but she's able to convey that strong belief in domesticity through maintaining this really active online presence. So it's both like hyper domestic and it's also hyper domesticity through blogging and through hyper visibility online. So there's a performativity to it. To there is. To her, yeah. Her and so it's, you know, she's taking that, you know, and there are others who are even more so take that domestic space online. Like there's this uh, one called the Blonde Butter Maker. And so she is very interested in making like bone broth and organic butter and homeschooling. And, you know, really exists in the realm, as she portrays it, of kind of like DIY culture. Yeah, DIY mm -hmm. culture, the household, you right. know, where she is the wife and the mother. And we don't see, you know, the husband, but, you know, she has the strong, virile white husband who is interested in, you know, being a man. And she's relegated to the private sphere. Yes. He's relegated to the But she's sphere. on, you know, she's vlogging right. about it all the time. Right. So if you want to know how to make bone broth and how that's good for kind of raising white consciousness, you know, you can go watch her videos. So that's kind of one of the, it's a very interesting kind of um, media space and kind of social space that these women occupy. And they figured out a way to do it. And I would say that, 
you know, some of them are much savvier and more interesting um, than their white male counterparts. Uh, that is very interesting. I, I lied. I have one more question really quickly. Where does, so where's your future research going? And also what, for people who do this work, anti-racist work, um, gender studies, women's studies, queer studies, uh, especially in the academy, and then also outside of the academy, I think is even more important to sort of talk about what are the, what are the sort of possible, what are the, where do we go from here? Well, where I think we go from here is that we definitely engage in conversation and we um, make sure that we can um, trace the links between these different manifestations of misogyny, white nationalism. And I, one of the, there's a few areas that I am particularly interested in that I think we should keep an eye on. The first is what I kind of call this erosion zone between civic nationalism and ethno-nationalism. And so if you look at what's going on on the U.S.-Mexico border and you look at the strategies that are being implemented um, against immigrants, you know, and the um, long waits, if not outright denials of asylum, family separation, long-term detention, um, attempts to potentially revoke birthright citizenship, all of that, um, those are you know, I have this question, you know, if those strategies are implemented still in the context of, you know, um, uh, without any specific overt racial bias, when do they actually become ethno-nationalists? Mm. So that's like, what is this erosion zone? Another erosion zone is like where the alt-right meets the alt-light. And you have people like Jordan Peterson, who himself has spoken out against authoritarianism. He doesn't like nationalism, but he's incredibly transphobic and has all these gender essentialist ideas and also believes in the connection between race and IQ. But he's helping to normalize this. He has a lot of followers. So like keeping uh, our eyes on people like him. And the final area that I think is really important is um, the way in which, and I just wrote a, a op-ed piece on this on how white nationalists are appropriating the language of environmentalism. So when we think of, you know, kind of conservatives or kind of the right, you know, we often associate them with climate, you know, denying climate change, um, denying environmental regulation, um, just really being anti-environment. But there is a pretty a strong thread within white nationalists and ethno-nationalist movements of what uh, they have called, and I think we should just simply call eco-fascism, which is this idea that um, in order to stave off extinction and protect themselves, whites need to be environmentalists to protect their own futures and to protect their own habitats. So for example, the El Paso shooter you know, some people don't really understand, well, why was this guy talking about the Lorax? It was talking about the Lorax because he's embracing eco-fascism. He rejected the, um, you know, kind of climate denial of the Republican Party and all of that and thinks that, you know, basically white nationalists need to become environmentalists to save themselves and to save the planet. Now, environmentalists and, you know, progressive environmentalists are horrified by what he's saying and, you know, his explanations of what environmentalism should look like, you know, don't mesh with many explanations of what environmental actually, what environmentalism is and what it should be doing and how it needs to be, 
you know, kind of diverse and attuned to different aspects of social justice and so on. But nevertheless, that is, I think that language is going to become more contested. And we really need to be aware of that because, you know, I don't know if you know, but, you know, in the 90s, there were big fights going on in the Sierra Club when people like John Tanton and others were trying to really kind of get a, a wing of the Sierra Club to, you know, be super, you know, xenophobic, anti-immigrant, and to connect that to overpopulation and connect that to protection of natural resources like that has been there for a while. And I think we have to be hyper vigilant about that for those of us who, you know, really care about kind of, you know, uh, race, having a resilient, racially diverse society where environmental um, environmentalism is kind of front and center. Thank you so much for this conversation. I really enjoyed it. Um, I would urge everyone who's listening to this to read Dr. Ministern's most recent book, Proud Boys and the White Ethno State, How the Alt-Right is Warping the American Imagination, and that is published by Beacon Press. Thank you so much. Thank you. Mm-hmm.